The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Eikin. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Taylor Damiani. She's a coach and licensed psychologist based in California. She helps adult children of narcissistic parents stop walking on eggshells and step into their power and purpose. Her clients are acutely perceptive of others' needs, but struggle to put themselves first. Dr. Damiani helps them come home to themselves and grow in self-love, acceptance and worth. In today's episode, we are addressing how to heal from narcissistic abuse. We'll be discussing techniques to mitigate feelings of helplessness, turning maladaptive coping strategies into adaptive ones, and fostering self-validation. We'll also delve into the healing power of grieving and methods to rebuild self-confidence. Let's get started. Hi, Taylor. Thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you in this podcast episode. It's great to be back again. Good to see you. Great. And same, same. Uh, Today we have some great questions coming, so let's get started with them. And the first one is, what are the steps that someone can take to overcome the feelings of helplessness and powerlessness that narcissistic abuse creates? I would say the first thing is to know that you are absolutely not alone. These are super common feelings to have amongst survivors of narcissistic abuse. Um, So I'll start by saying that. Secondly, if you are not already, I would strongly encourage you. I know that everyone's situation is very different. So, um, but I would strongly encourage you to consider low or no contact if that's feasible for you. I know that it's not feasible for everyone, but creating distance will definitely be instrumental in helping you regain a sense of power over your life. So diving in a little bit more into detail, what you can do is start by validating your experience. One of the most important steps to overcoming the effects of narcissistic abuse is to acknowledge and validate your experience. Narcissistic abuse really leaves us feeling confused and isolated and unsure of ourselves. So recognize that your experiences are real and that you have the right to feel the way that you do. Your feelings are valid. In addition, it can be helpful to maybe journal or talk to a trusted friend or a therapist about your experiences to help you gain more clarity um, and validation as well. Another thing that you can do is identify your triggers because we know that narcissistic abuse creates triggers that lead to feelings of helplessness and powerlessness. So it can be helpful to identify these triggers. For example, it might be certain words or actions um, from, let's say, if you have a narcissistic parent or other people, other individuals, and then develop coping strategies to manage them. So for example, if a certain phrase or certain behavior triggers you, you can practice certain things that will, that will help you cope. So for example, having tools in your tool belt, like practicing deep breathing, 
or visualization exercises to calm yourself down. Do they solve the entire problem? No. Are they part pieces of the puzzle that help? Yes. Um, and then finally, we talk about this all the time, but setting boundaries. So setting and maintaining boundaries, we know is super crucial. And we also know that it can be really challenging to set boundaries with someone with narcissistic traits because they may not respect your boundaries or they may even try to violate them. However, setting these boundaries can help us feel more in control and less vulnerable. So be clear and assertive about your boundaries and stick to them, even if it's difficult. We have to remember that setting boundaries is two parts. It's setting them and then enforcing them. So as an example, I might say, I will have to hang up the phone and end this conversation if you continue to raise your voice at me. This is the boundary. And then if they continue to raise their voice, then your job is to follow through and enforce the boundary by hanging up the phone or letting them know, I'm going to be hanging up the phone now and then hanging it up. If your boundaries are continuously not respected, this is important information for you. And you then get to decide if you want to continue your continue with your boundaries being violated or if you want to make another choice. For example, perhaps considering low or no contact. Thank you. Uh, I don't know what to add. That is such a great and clear list. And like, like you said, there are pieces of the puzzle. So uh, that can help in the whole uh, thing when you try to overcome like helplessness and powerlessness and anyway, trying to heal from or move on from narcissistic abuse. So thank you. You're welcome. Then we have, after experiencing narcissistic abuse for months, years, or even decades, it's common for people to develop maladaptive coping strategies. What would you recommend to a, what would you recommend a person experiencing narcissistic abuse to do if they are trying to turn their maladaptive coping strategies into adaptive coping strategies? I would say it's a process. It takes time. So be patient with yourself. It took a while to get to this point. It will take a while to move through it. Change can happen. It just may take time. So number one, recognize and acknowledge the maladaptive co coping strategies. This does require some level of self-awareness and an honest assessment of your behaviors and your actions. It can be helpful to keep a journal or you can also, like I mentioned, work with a therapist to help you to identify and understand some of these strategies. Secondly, understand the function of those maladaptive coping strategies and then validate yourself. So they often developed as a means of survival in response to narcissistic abuse. These strategies probably served a protective function for you by helping you feel less vulnerable or overwhelmed. They were adaptive. They served a purpose. They helped you survive. Now, they maybe aren't so helpful. Perhaps they're maladaptive. But the beauty of that, the beauty of recognizing this is that you can 
unlearn old behaviors and you can relearn new ones. Third, identify your triggers and your stressors. Our maladaptive coping strategies are really often triggered by stressors or difficult emotions. And what can be helpful is to identify those triggers and the stressors so that they can be managed more effectively. So an example being, you know, if a particular interaction with a narcissistic person triggers those coping strategies, it can be helpful to develop strategies to manage that interaction more effectively. Fourth, I would say absolutely practicing self-compassion. This process of turning those maladaptive coping strategies into adaptive ones is a challenging one that requires time and patience and compassion for yourself. So it's really important to be kind and understanding towards towards yourself and acknowledge that change takes time. You might even consider treating yourself as you would a best friend who was going through something like this. And then lastly, develop new coping strategies. This may, it may involve learning new skills or behaviors, for example, like effective communication or boundary setting. And of course, you can, you know, work with a therapist to to develop and practice these coping strategies um, and try them out on your own. Mm, Thank you. Uh, So what you mentioned, effective communication, that's like a a skill that you can, you know, learn. What are some other, mm, like, uh, other healthy replacements to these maladaptive uh, stra- coping strategies. For example, if someone is, you know, wants to use alcohol or drugs to numb themselves, what would be a good, you know, adaptive uh, coping strategy or behavior that they could use in order to replace that? Or someone has an urge to gamble or just to start shopping a lot on online, and whenever they feel stressed, someone might want to uh, overeat or not eat at all. Uh, can you like give uh, some ideas for a- adaptive coping strategies? Uh, so because you said this all list and the last one was to learn new skills and strategies. So yeah, some examples. Yeah, the, uh, we could talk about this for hours, but it really depends on, you know, when I talk with my clients about this, it really depends on what brings them joy, what fills their cup. And so I usually spend some time exploring with my clients, what gives you a sense of pleasure in life, um, both in the short, both in the short term and the long term. If we're talking short-term, it might be, you know, it looks differently for everyone, but it might look like, um, you know, for example, going out and taking a walk or calling up a trusted friend um, or going to the beach um, or there's, there's, there's so many different things that, that, you know, people could do for, for enjoyment or for fun. Um some people enjoy playing video games. Some people like watching funny clips on, on YouTube. Um, so there's a lot of different things that people can do. Um, and those are in the short term. Um, then, you know, there's things in the long term, like 
setting goal, like identifying your values and setting goals that are consistent with your values. Things that you may not see immediate gratification, but that take more time to, um, to see that gratification. Um, like for example, I really want to have a job where I work with children. So I'm going to start prepping my resume and I'm going to, I'm going to start thinking about all the things that I have to do to get to my end goal, because the, the, the goal that I have is helping children and the value that that falls under is care, connection, supporting my community. Those are the values that I want to live out in my life. So there, there are, and then there's, there's so many other coping strategies that you can use. Um, for example, I use a lot of DBT skills, dialectical behavior therapy, which are, um, there's a lot of emotion regulation skills that you can use. If, for example, someone was struggling with, with binge eating or with drinking, um, there are a lot of strategies that you can use in the moment that work in a matter of minutes to seconds to lower your emotional activation and bring you down from, let's say like a, a 10 on the scale of emotional activation to maybe like a seven or a six or a five. Um, and these are things like, for example, one of them being, um, the, one of them being is doing some intense exercise for about 15 to 20 minutes, because what this does is um, let's say you're feeling really, really anxious or you're triggered by something and you're feeling really, really anxious going out and doing some intense exercise where it's cardio, where you get your heart pumping does a couple of things. One, it gets the stress hormones out of your body, the adrenaline and the cortisol that are coursing through your body when you're highly stressed. It works, exercise works that those stress hormones out of your body. And it also endorses your or improves, uh, increases your endorphins, which make us feel good. And so you're reducing your anxiety and increasing your endorphins. So you're changing your body chemistry simply by doing some intense exercise. There are so many different <laughs> healthy coping strategies to teach. I could talk a lot about it, but that's just kind of like okay. a, a smattering. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was helpful. Then the third question we have is it's common for those experiencing narcissistic abuse to engage in self devaluation and self invalidation. What advice do you have for a person who has experienced narcissistic abuse, who is trying to stop devaluing and invalidating themselves? Again, I would say this is a process. It requires time and effort and patience. Um, so again, one start with recognizing that self-blame is actually a very common reaction after we experience things like interpersonal or relational trauma and narcissistic abuse. It's our way of making sense of the trauma. And sometimes it can feel a lot safer for us to place the blame on ourselves than to admit to ourselves that another person is very unsafe or toxic or not healthy to be in a relationship with. So know that you are not abnormal for having these feelings. Second, 
going back to our tried and true self-compassion, we may learn to internalize their messages and then we can become our own harshest self-critic. But instead of treating ourselves so harshly, what if we treated ourselves like we do our best friend? This involves treating ourselves with kindness, with understanding, with acceptance, even in the face of really difficult emotions or experiences. Third is challenge negative self-talk. So negative self-talk is a really common pattern of thinking that can contribute to these feelings of self-devaluation and self-invalidation. And it's important to identify that negative self-talk and to, um, to challenge it or to reframe it in a more balanced, into more balanced and realistic thoughts. So for example, if a person finds themselves thinking, I'm not good enough, which is a very common thought process to have, they might challenge this or they might reframe this by reframe this thought by asking themselves, well, is this really true? What evidence is there that I'm not good enough? This is good old fashioned CBT work for, for the therapists out there. <laughs> um, fourth, I would say practice developing some self-validation skills. Um, this is the process of recognizing and accepting your emotions and your thoughts and your experiences as valid and important and not just invalidating yourself or brushing those feelings under the rug. This can be a super powerful tool for countering, countering self-validation and um, self, self-devaluation. Um, and really it, it involves acknowledging your emotions and expressing them in a healthy way and seeking support from others when needed. Fifth, build a supportive network. We know that having supportive, supportive networks of friends, family, um, or you know, a therapist can be really an important source of, of uh, resource, you know, for people who have experienced narcissistic abuse. Surround yourself with people who are understanding and validating and supportive, um, and seek out those relationships that are healthy and fulfilling for you. And then, of course, we know that setting boundaries and practicing self-care are really important aspects of, um, of maintaining our emotional and mental well-being. So setting those boundaries and then engaging in activities that fill your cup, that um, promote relaxation, things, you know, we talk about these things all the time, like you know, doing exercise or meditation, but they really are very important to us or just, you know, engaging in hobbies or activities that bring you joy and fulfillment. That can be another thing that we struggle to do when we um, have experienced narcissistic abuse is we can struggle to have fun or enjoy ourselves or not know what, what brings us joy or not feel, feel like we don't deserve to have that joy. So engaging in self-care can be a radical act. Thank you again for the list of practical things that we can all 
implement into our lives pretty easily. I always think it's nice that uh, like even though this thing and struggle that we are facing might be very, very tough to overcome, but usually these steps like they are not rocket science, like we can we can do it and with practice it gets easier. So it's it's nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, then we have why is grieving such an important part of healing from narcissistic abuse? And what are five to ten things that a person experiencing narcissistic abuse can do to support their grieving journey? This is such a great question. And it's I think it's it's a complex one. So I will do my best to talk about it in a succinct way. I'll start by saying that grieving involves the process of acknowledging and experiencing and processing the emotions that come with the loss of what could have been the loss of the idealized relationship with the narcissistic person and the loss of one's sense of self. It's a really important part of our process because it allows us to honor our experiences and our emotions and to move through our pain and to begin to rebuild our lives. Essentially, grief allows for growth. Grief indicates at some level acceptance. We need to be able to process our grief in order to move through it. They say we need to feel it to heal it. So here are five things that a person experiencing um, narcissistic abuse can do to support their own grieving journey. One is consider acceptance as a tool to use. Acceptance means acknowledging reality as it is. So you might ask yourself, what am I refusing to accept? If you notice that there are still feelings of anger or resentment coming up for you, then that's an indication that there is still acceptance work to be done. Number two is allow yourself to feel. The first step in the grieving process is allowing yourself to feel the full range of emotions. That includes sadness, that includes anger or rage, and it includes regret. Number three, seek out support. You don't have to do this grieving process alone. Find people who can listen and who can offer validation and support. Number four is educate yourself about narcissistic abuse. This can be powerful. We know that learning about the dynamics of narcissistic abuse can help to validate our experiences and really provide a sense of clarity and give the understanding, ew, I'm not crazy. This is something that happens in the world. And then lastly, if you feel like this would be helpful for you, you may seek out guidance either through therapy or a coach, someone who specializes in narcissistic abuse and understands and can provide you 
with that support and that validation and that guidance through your through your grieving process. Thank you. I really liked when you first started this whole thing by saying that uh, because you are grieving, that is already some form of acceptance because uh, if you are not entered yet to the grieving process, you probably are either in denial or just ignoring the stuff because you're not, isn't that right? That before grieving, there is still either shock or denial or just closing your eyes or is it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we, um, basically being in, in denial about reality is it's when we're, you know, we're throwing that temper tantrum with reality. We're saying, no, you shouldn't be this way. You should mm. be different reality. I don't like this. We're still in denial. And, and when we're in denial, that means, yeah, we're, we're putting up a wall where we haven't yet accepted, or we haven't moved into that, the realm of acceptance yet. So, but yeah, grieving. And, and I think that is, you know, maybe part of the grieving denial may be part of the grieving process. Um, but really feeling your emotions and feeling that grief and that sadness, um, it does mean that you, in essence, have begun to move into acceptance. Mm, yeah, great, great. Uh, then we have one of the biggest struggles that people who have experienced narcissistic abuse have is self-doubt. What can they do to overcome their self-doubt and rebuild their self-confidence? This is a great question. And it, the, my response to this could look very similar to, I think my response to number three, but I'll provide some, some different thoughts here. Um, so first I'll start by saying that the constant criticism and manipulation and gaslighting by a narcissistic person can really lead to internalizing these negative messages, which can obviously lead us to feeling self-doubt and low self-esteem. So some things that we can do to overcome our self-doubt or, you know, work towards um, a sense of self-confidence are one, set some small goals and celebrate those successes. Setting small goals and celebrating our successes can help build the, our self-confidence. It can be as simple as setting a goal to make a phone call to an old friend or completing a task, or trying a new hobby. And then celebrate. That's key, is celebrate yourself. Celebrate yourself for taking that risk, for stepping out there. We often tend to view ourselves through a deficit model. We only see our weaknesses. We can be so harsh and self-critical. So it's important to really celebrate our strengths and our successes. Number two, identify your values and set goals that are in alignment with your values. Living a life that is in line with our values builds self-confidence. It builds self-efficacy. We're able to say, X, Y, Z is important to me. These are important values in my life. For example, you know, love, connection, community, those might be important values to you. How can I live out those values in my life? I'm going to set goals that are in alignment with them. Number three is 
practice approaching yourself with non-judgment instead of always judging yourself. Um, you know, for example, if I stumble in the kitchen and I spill some water on the ground and I say, oh my gosh, Taylor, you're such an idiot. How do you think I'll feel versus if I, if I use the scale of non-judgment, which is simply just describing what I observe without interpretation or assumption or judgment, and I'm just sticking to the facts. What if I were to just say, you know, I, I stumbled and I spilled some water on the floor. How do you think my emotion, what, what do you think my emotions would be if I say that versus the former? Mm. I probably feel a lot less bad about myself. So this is something that I talk a lot about with my clients is practicing non-judgment. How can we do more of that in your life instead of being judgmental, being non-judgmental? Four is volunteering or helping other people. We know that helping other people can shift our focus away from our negative self-talk and immediately build feelings of self-worth and confidence. And then lastly, something that we can struggle with is a sense of perfectionism. So recognize and challenge that perfectionism. Perfectionism can lead to unrealistic expectations and and self-doubt. And so it's important to recognize when perfectionism is driving that negative self-talk and to reframe that inner critic with self-compassion and acceptance. This, you know, this, we know this healing process takes so much time and patience, but with, with dedication, with support, with time, it is possible for us to reclaim our sense of self-worth and self-confidence. Thank you. Again, a great list of practical tips and, uh, yeah. Uh, and I really liked your non, the example of, Hey, we could be also non-judgmental towards ourselves. And, uh, there we have, a uh, a private community where there is this one person, she's very supportive and supports everyone there. And she always promotes humor. Like she is like, humor is such a great way. And it just came to my mind when you said that if you, you know, stumble on something and spill the water that maybe sometimes you can see it. Like it's not, life is not that serious. Like, like you can maybe laugh yeah. a little bit about yourself or like, why, why did I do that? Or like <laughs> something like that. And I actually remember yeah. I once I was on running somewhere. I don't know how, but I, I, I fell straight to my face. Oh my was, gosh. <laughs> I was uh, at my summer cottage alone and I was, I was, I started laughing because I was like, if I could get a video footage of that, how did I look? <laughs> I remember when I was falling up that my, my, like, I felt like I was just, you know, so shocked. How can I fall? Me as a, like, I think I was like, 23 years old at the time or something because I felt like <laughs> how can I be so you know uh what is it called when some 
how do you call it clumsy how can clumsy. i be <laughs> yeah so clumsy yeah <laughs> yeah i had a good laugh uh, laugh in the middle of woods by myself so yeah. that's so great yeah i love that point you know having humor and and not taking ourselves too seriously i mean i think that is something that we can do if we maybe like for my for my clients um i work with adult children of narcissistic parents and that's you know, something where you grow up with that narcissistic abuse, it can lead to taking yourself really seriously and having a hard time laughing or having humor or, you know, being playful or being, you know, having that flexibility. Yeah. So that's such a great point that you make about yeah, laughing yeah. a little bit, having, finding the humor in things. Yeah. And I feel like it's hard to have humor in things and be playful if you're so like tense, like it, yeah. so, like humor and laughing. If you think about laughing as a, uh, it requires this, some kind of that you free yourself to burst into a laugh. Like it, you just, if you're very tense, it, it doesn't come naturally. It might be like, <laughs> but it's not, it's not like a genuine laugh. At least that's, yeah. that's what I feel. So yeah, it's, it's hard yeah. to, hard to have that but yeah <laughs> thank you thank you so much for today's talk i think we learned a lot and uh these yeah, were great welcome. thank you yeah we, these were great questions so uh, i want to thank everyone for listening and i want to thank you taylor again coming uh to talk with me and share your valuable insight about uh today's topics so thank you so much you are so welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to be here. I appreciate all the work that you all are doing. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.